we have this tendency to think in dichotomous terms, that there's success and that's the good thing we should pursue, and then there's failure, that's the bad thing we should avoid. And I think it's instructive here, people who teach entrepreneurship frequently say this, and, and it's true, successful entrepreneurs usually are only successful after their third, fourth, or fifth try. The first one, two, three, four tries are generally failures. And, and so what distinguishes what people think of as a successful entrepreneur from the unsuccessful entrepreneurs is not the success or failure. It's the persistence that you learn from your failures because you're going to have them. You grow from them and you move on. And so in that sense, I think like pain is part of growth, I think failure is, is a necessary part of success. It's what enables us to learn how to do better and how, how to actually become more successful in the future. Three, two, one. Welcome to the Mind for Life podcast. The Mind for Life podcast. Where your thinking can change your life. And now, here's your host, Jeff Bogazic. All right, what is up, everybody? Welcome once again to the Mind for Life podcast. My name is Jeff Bogazic, and I will be your host today where we talk about how a transformation in your thinking can transform and change your life. It is so great to have you with us today. Thanks for joining us. Today we have a very, very special guest. His name is Dr. Anthony Davies. And he is an associate professor of economics at Duquesne University. Dr. Davies authors monthly columns on economics and public policy for the Philadelphia Inquirer and U.S. News and World Report and co-hosts a wonderful podcast called Words and Numbers on Economics and Policy. He's written over 300 op-eds for, among others, the Wall Street Journal, the Los Angeles Times, the New York Daily News, the Washington Post, and the Huffington Post. In addition to his academic work, Dr. Davies was associate producer at the Moving Pictures Institute, chief financial officer at Parabon Computation. He founded several technology companies and is co-founder and chief academic officer at Freedom Trust, which is a nonprofit educational institution. He earned his Bachelor of Science in Economics from St. Vincent College and a PhD in Economics from the State University of New York at Albany. And we are so honored to have him with us. We had an incredibly insightful talk, and I hope you learn as much as I did. Uh, when you listen to the interview. But before we get to that, let me mention a couple of things. First, I would like to read for you our review of the week. Each week, I shout out one of our reviewers here. So this one goes out to the future of Troyism, who says, firstly, Jeff has a great radio slash podcast voice. Well, thank you so much for that future of Troyism. It's a perfect fit for the format. The show is really informative. The topics are interesting and the host is very engaging and entertaining. All nice words. This podcast is at the level of thoughtfulness you want to come across all the time. 
I can't wait to hear more. Well, I want to thank you so much, Future of Troyism, for that wonderful and thoughtful, kind review. And if you would like to leave a review and be heard here on the Mind for Life podcast, head on over to iTunes, subscribe to the Mind for Life podcast, and leave a rating and review, and we will read that right here on the program. Second, let me mention our podcast sponsor. That is Bluehost.com. Bluehost is a leading web solution services provider. Founded in 2003, they've innovated new ways continually to deliver on their mission, which is to empower people to fully harness the web. They provide comprehensive tools to millions of users, one of which is me, throughout the world so anyone novice or pro can get on the web and thrive and let me just say what a great great technical support they have for the past week i've been trying to do some things with my website and i've called them and spent literally hours on the phone with them several nights trying to work through some things and they have been incredible so if you want a company if you're going to start a podcast a website a blog or something like that and you want somebody that will be able to help you through uh, on the technical support end they are great and i highly recommend them the show notes for this program will be at mindforlife.org forward slash zero two five. So you can click on over there, get all the notes that I took on this program, including the links and timestamps. Please stick around to the end of the program where I share my top learning moments from the time that I had here with Anthony. And let me say this now, for the first time, you can become a patron of this podcast and help to support it with as little as $1 a month. So with your kindness and generosity, you can help us to cover the costs of producing this program, which include web hosting, media hosting, domain production, and everything like that. So head on over to mindforlife.org and you can click on the link that says become a patron and help us out that way. And then last but not least, We started a new feature this past week, five on Friday, where I give five minute reflection on a particular topic that hopefully will inspire you to think a little bit deeper. So if you didn't get a chance to listen to that, click on back and listen to how I talk about choosing your freedom. All right. As I mentioned, a great honor to talk with Dr. Anthony Davey. So let's get right into the interview. All right, Anthony, thank you so much for coming on the program today. Great to have you with us. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Yes, uh, I've read through your bio and everything like that. Tell us a little bit about yourself. I'm interested how you got interested in economics. Huh, that's a good question. My mother told me to study it. Your mom... <laughs> Your mom told you to say, how did that happen? I'd always had an interest in mathematics. I kind of did it like as a hobby. And uh, she said, well, you're going to college. You should study. uh, You should study economics. I had no idea what it was. But she Uh said, if you like math, you'll like that. And she was right. Um, So you got a degree in economics. Then you went on for a master's degree. No, I I did my undergraduate degree at St. Vincent College in economics and then went straight for the Ph.D. at uh, the State University of New York at Albany. Okay. Now, this is interesting to me because, of course, I study rhetoric and uh, I'm, I'm actually finishing through my program down there at Duquesne in the communication, pro- in the communication department. So, oh, excellent. One of the th- yeah. Um, one of the things that interests me is, obviously, 
in economics, you're dealing with numbers and you're coming more from a quantitative perspective. Is that, is that fair to say? Well, it, it depends on the field in economics. My specialty is quantitative analysis, so I deal tremendously with numbers. Uh, but the field itself is, is a field of human behavior. So we're fundamentally asking questions uh, about what happens when people's unlimited desires collide with their limited abilities. Uh-huh. Um, now, are, do you have ways to measure those desires yeah, well, it, it varies depending on what it is, you know. And th- this is one of the interesting things in, in where where people who are non-economists um, start to misunderstand what economics is about uh, be- because it's very easy to measure dollars, right? They're out there. They pile up on a table. So, so things involving profit are very easily measured. And so consequently, people start to think, well, economics is just about making a buck. Uh, which it isn't. It's it's about human behavior. It just so happens that it's very easy to measure uh, people who are making a buck. But there, you know, there are branches of economics uh, now, experimental economics, uh, that that deal with uh, attempting to measure uh, people's happiness, and and that's as much economics as as the other is. Now, one of the things that our this podcast is about, and we try to explore, is. Uh, you might call it the philosophy of success or how people think about success, how people think about happiness, how people think about fulfillment. And I'm interested to get your take on that, maybe from an economics perspective. Uh, have you researched any of that information? Do you have any uh, opinions about that? Yeah, well, that's an interesting question, right? Because people focus a lot on success. And it's a term that economists tend not to use. Um, but what we do is we look at people who are pursuing objectives, right? And so you know, some people will say, well, economics is about being selfish, and, and it isn't. It's about pursuing what makes you happy. And for some people, uh, what makes them happy is just, you know, uh, gathering lots of wealth and bling and whatnot. Um, but for some people, uh, what makes them happy is helping others, you know, raising uh, families or helping the poor. And economics treats both those people the same. They're, they're, they're pursuing what they believe makes them happy. So, so in that sense, uh, an economist would say you're successful if, you're, if you are achieving the thing that makes you happy. Accomplishing your goal, if you accomplish your goal or whatever your goal is that makes you quote unquote happy, you would, an economist, an economist would define that as success. Yeah. Yeah. What do you think? Do you agree with that? Well, that's interesting, right? Because I can only answer for myself. Everybody's, uh, what, what I consider successful is not what other people consider successful. Correct. And it, you know, for, for me, I'd say it's, it's, you know, of course it's partly financial, which I think it is for everybody. You, you know, you need dollars to put food on the table and the roof over your head. It's also partly relational, you know, nurturing friendships, raising a family. It's partially uh, spiritual, having a relationship with the divine. And and then I think I'd I'd add one more thing to my definition of, of success. It's partly uncomfortable. That is, if you aren't if, if you're going through life experiencing no pain, then there's likely little growth going on. So, um, so to an extent, we need to, at least I, I feel that we need to seek out our step outside of our comfort zones frequently. And, and so that's an interesting, interesting concept. Success then is not the absence of pain, right? But there is a presence of it, maybe not too far, but a little bit, right? That's a philosophical uh, perspective that pushes you beyond what's familiar. So for you, yeah. success has to do with growth. 
Yeah, I think I think that's true. I, I would define you know for for me, success is growth, and growth is growth is painful. Now it's it's a pain it's a pain that ends up being rewarding as opposed to to a pain that that you know leaves you broken. Uh, but but there but there's a component of pain involved. Huh. That's interesting because a lot of people and uh, a lot of people would not make that connection. I think a lot of people would think, okay, when I'm successful, I won't have any more worries. But there's a little bit of a different qualitative aspect of what you're becoming as an individual. Yeah, I, I think that's so. Um, you know, and, and again, these things vary by 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 person. Um, you know, for myself, I think if one of the important things about being a successful person is is growing, becoming more than you were before. Not just for your own sake, but for the sake of the people you know you around you, your, the community, your family, people you interact with. Um, the the better of a person you are, the better you can help make their lives be, and and that requires growth, which in turn is going to be painful. <laughs> um, how do you? perceive or understand the relationship between success and failure yeah that's a that's a good question um we we have this tendency to to think in dichotomous terms that there's success and that's the good thing we should pursue and then there's failure that's the bad thing we we should avoid and i think it's instructive here people who teach entrepreneurship frequently say this and, and it's true successful entrepreneurs usually are only successful after their third fourth or fifth try the first one, two, three, four tries are, are generally failures. And, and so what distinguishes what, what people think of as a successful entrepreneur from the unsuccessful entrepreneurs is not the success or failure. It's the persistence that you learn from your failures because you're going to have them. You grow from them and, and you move on. And so in, in that sense, it, I think like, like pain is part of growth, I think failure is, is a necessary part of success. It's what enables us to, to learn how to do better and how, how, to, um, how to actually become more successful in the future. So have you studied entrepreneurship then? Have you done research on that? No, no, I haven't, but I'm a serial entrepreneur. I, I leave academia about once every seven years and go start a company um, and, and then wonder, my God, why have I done this and go back to academia for another <laughs> seven years? Uh, I, yeah, I noticed in your bio, we mentioned it uh, earlier that in some of the different companies you've started, what has been your greatest uh, experience having gone through that and maybe what has been the, the most difficult challenge for you? Well, I think, you know, and they vary. So, so my, I've started, you know, a handful of companies and they run the gamut from things that, that died pretty quickly on the vine to things that were moderately successful to things that we ended up growing a little bit and then selling to things that, that uh, you know, ac- actually ended up down the road going IPO and listed on stock markets. Mm-hmm. So, so, you know, I, I've got a wide variety of, of, of experiences there. And, and I think, I think my most interesting ones are the ones that, you know, going back to your original question, are the ones that that caused me to to end the experience a much different person than I started. Uh, you know, one one case in point, uh, Parabon Computation, which is a, uh, an outfit that does supercomputing. Um, I, I was uh, I was a co-founder of the company, uh, came on board as their chief financial officer. And at the time, other than, you know, I had started some other companies before, but I'd never been 
in an executive type in a regular standard company that had, you know, an office and 60 employees and the whole business. Right. And and so it was a very moving into a very traditional uh, executive role. I'd been largely an academic prior to that. And um, and it was very difficult to to make that transition it's a very different world people who are in the in in this world um they, they differ from academics in that uh you can't waste time on on things that aren't in which it's not immediately clear to you this is going to create value for the company right right so if you spend spend more than than a day thinking about some problem and you don't see a solution that you need to drop that and move on to something else because you're wasting the company's time on on the other hand um, and, and that's kind of the downside, right? Because in academe, we have the we have the freedom to pursue all sorts of thoughts, not having to worry about whether these things are going to pan out. And so consequently, you get a lot richer results coming out of uh, research results coming out of, out of academe than you do having coming coming out of industry. However, the flip side of that is academe moves at a snail's pace, right? right. You can have in academe a good idea, mention it to to your higher ups. They'll appoint over six months a committee whose job it is to appoint members of a committee to think about this problem, right? Mm-hmm. And so three, four, five <laughs> years down the road, maybe something will happen, right? No, not in industry. In industry, you have a good idea at nine o'clock. At 10 o'clock, you're talking to somebody about it. At 11 o'clock, someone's made a decision to spend resources on this idea or not. So, so it's, that's the upside that good ideas move quickly in, in, uh, in, uh, in, in business. Mm-hmm. And the downside? Well, the, the the downside is uh, if you can't show me it's actually a good idea and show me up front, uh, you know, we're we're not going to pursue this thing. And you know, and that's kind of interesting because one of my more more interesting academic publications came about um, from work I was doing while I was at Parabon. But I'm doing this work. I'm not seeing an immediate application that we can you know earn money off of this thing, and so right. I shelved it. It wasn't until I got back to academe and I had the freedom to just look at this thing and I realized, oh my God, this actually was a pretty cool idea and then yeah. ended up uh, publishing it. Uh, so here's an interesting question because I think you, you're mentioning something that's pretty common in our society and that is the idea of maybe utility in business. And you know, one of the areas of research for me is is the area of technology and um, and human behavior and human communication. And one of the guys that I'm researching talks about the fact that scientific research anymore uh, doesn't seem to have the value unless there is a technical end, right? Unless unless it can be applied. And so when, you, when you're making a distinction here between academics and being able to research things that are of interest, but more and more due to the technological society and our culture, those things are going away. And unless you can sell it, unless you can apply it, unless you can find a way uh, to make that thing useful to someone in business and make money off of it, it seems like it that that's disappearing. Is that yeah, fair? It, yeah, it, I think it's fair, and but it's, it's more than fair. It makes sense because um, you know when when you're in business, you're you're 
using your your living off of your salary is coming from investors who have who have put their money into the company right and and they put their money into the company this is their savings right and they're going to you know in part live off of of the the returns that you provide if you can't provide them returns uh, if it's not apparent you know how you're going to make the money then you're you're actually wasting their savings on messing around with things right now you don't you tend not to get that effect in academe and the reason you don't get it in academe is because what the, the way we provide value on an ongoing basis is by educating students. Mm-hmm. So so the money that's coming in that's paying the faculty is coming from educated, educating students. Oh, and on the side, we're also going to do some research, right? And if your research right. pans out, that's great. If it doesn't, it doesn't. Um, but, but, but in that sense, you're not sitting around wasting time thinking of things that aren't going to make anybody any value while simultaneously eating up someone else's resources. Right. It's an interesting thought because there are, there are I would... I would bet that there are a lot of things that have furthered our society and our knowledge and culture that in the past did not come out of uh, a utility type of end, right? Yeah, I, I think there are. I think that the, the thing we have to keep in mind here is is there are things that provide value to society that don't necessarily provide dollars to society, right? right? So you could talk about art, uh, mm-hmm. music, these sorts of things. And and from an economic standpoint, these things are all valuable, right? Um, the, the, the question for, for an economy, for a people, is what am I willing to give up to get those things? Because as, as wonderful as a, as a piece of sculpture is or as beautiful as a dance is, um, it, costs, it costs some of society's resources to produce that. So what are we willing to give up to get that? And, and that's the question that, that economics plays with. So here, uh, going deeper on that, have you noticed a difference in studying our culture and what those cultural aspects, right? Art, music, uh, the things that maybe not, uh, maybe not be so useful, uh, when it comes to providing dollars. Have you noticed any changes, uh, in the way society has looked at that and and the way resources have gone towards that? If if you've even looked at that. Well, I think it's not, it's not an area of, of my research, but, but it's something that, um, that you know, we we talk about a lot today. We talk about you know funding the arts, for example. My sister's a good example of this. She's a professor of theater and dance at Washington and Lee, mm-hmm. and we're we're always having this back and forth about. She's saying, "Well, the government should fund the arts," and my response is, "No, the government shouldn't fund the arts. People should fund the arts." And you know, and she says, "Well, but the arts are valuable." It's, okay, fine. I, I don't disagree that they're valuable, but my claim is if they really are valuable, then people will be willing to pay their money to see this art. And if people aren't willing to pay their money to see this art, then although the art may be valuable, by definition, it is less valuable than the other things that people could do with their resources instead. And and that's that's the that's the uncomfortable uh question that, that that art brings to economics, which is, yo, yes, it's valuable, but is it valuable enough? Mm-hmm. And so that would be based on the free market. In other words, if the market doesn't want it, they don't support it, it's not a good product, it's not valuable to our culture. 
Yeah, but I'd be careful saying the free market because that depersonalizes it, right? That's a shorthand. Mm-hmm. It's a shorthand way of saying what's really going on. What's really going on is individual people are choosing for themselves not to spend their resources on this, but to spend their resources instead on that. And if that's what people choose for themselves, that's what they choose for themselves. We call it the market, but it's but it's people. Sure. And, and so to, to say something like the government should fund the arts, really what you're saying is the government should come in, take these people's money, and spend it for them in ways that they would not voluntarily spend it otherwise. And that, to me, suggests a tremendous amount of hubris that that there are some people amongst us who are better than others that they should have the not only the the uh, the ability but the right to tell others how they should spend their own resources do you and i agree with that 100% by the way i'm playing devil's advocate on the other side do you believe that that is always the case like let's take for example uh, climate science or whatever if you want to say that uh, let people don't want to spend their money on you know, carbon footprint and stuff like that. Should the government, like, let's say those people supposedly know better than the rest of us, which I I don't necessarily agree with that, but should the government take steps when they feel something is valuable to fund it? And is that a, you know, intrusion on liberty? Yeah, so this is an, this is a question that frequently comes up when when we uh, I'll talk about free markets and, and people will bring up an example just like you did. Mm-hmm. And, and what I what I underline is free market does not mean doing whatever you want. It means doing whatever you want, provided that you are not imposing a harm on anyone else. Okay. Now, when we when we talk about things like environmental degradation, that's an instance of people imposing harm on others. So you know, I have a factory and, and it, it spits out pollution, and you know, it's you know the 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 stuff I've thrown to the river has killed the neighbor's dog, these kinds of things. I'm imposing a harm on others. And in that, that is antithetical to free markets. And it's absolutely a place where the government should step in and use resources it's taken from other people to stop this uh, this this uh, violation from happening. Okay. But in art, art and things like that, cultural value do not necessarily fall within that Right, because that's not in that's not imposing a harm on others. Now, now you can argue that look, really, you people should be watching more art. It would be good for you. But it's the people's money, right? And it, I even may I I may even be right that they would be better off spending their money on art. But for me to take it from them and force them to consume the art is 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 in a real sense making me making us no longer equal in the eyes of the law i'm now superior i should my opinion as to what's good for you should take precedence over your opinion of what's good for you do you think that culture i mean obviously cultures have changed and what cultures have valued throughout history has changed um and it doesn't seem as though like if we're if we're striving for government funding of the arts now it doesn't seem as though that that is a primary value for the majority of our culture. Do you have any ideas on why that may be? Or, I mean, that's maybe a, more of a sociological question, but... Yeah, but I, I don't think it's the case that, that art is not valuable to, to the population at large. Now, now again, this isn't my area, so I don't have the numbers top of mind, mm-hmm. but, but I ballpark, Americans spend more on art 
um, privately than the government spends on art publicly. So, so it's, it's not the case that, that we don't value the art. In, in fact, what happens when you have private funding of art instead of public funding of art is that you allow the people who are, who are observing the art to decide for themselves what art they want to support. Right. And so, so consequently, once in a while, you'll see these things on the news of, you know, some artist has done some shocking thing or painted, you know, the, the piece of plywood white and put it on the wall and said, this is art, right? <laughs> mm-hmm. And people say, this is ridiculous, right? This is, right. this is either offensive or it's a waste of money or whatnot. Almost invariably, that art is government funded. Correct. That is, the, the people who are deciding whether the art should be funded are not the people who are paying the bill. That's what you get with government-funded art. With privately funded art, the people who are deciding what they want to see are the people who are paying the bill. And so you tend to get less of, of the nonsense art and more of, of, of more serious art. Okay, that's interesting. That's an inter- I, I appreciate your thoughts on that. Uh, let me switch topics here for you, for you very quickly. You talk, We talked earlier about failure and success and the relationship between them. What would you say for you personally was in an entrepreneurial endeavor, the biggest failure that you experienced and what was the lesson that you took away from that? I think that the, the, the biggest failure is actually, I'll talk about the root cause. And the root cause is that I'm a horrible introvert. <laughs> I mean, I do, I travel the country giving, giving lectures and I do podcasts and videos and the whole thing. And you would think, oh, this guy's an extrovert. It's not the case at all. I'm, I'm very happy in front of an audience, mm-hmm. but one-on-one, it's just really painful for me. Right. Is that, and, and, what, uh, and so let me ask you, let me jump in there because is it easier through the mediation of like, so we're talking one-on-one and it seems very cordial and you, I think we're doing a great job. Is it, is it in person or is it... You know, is it easier through uh, uh, the technology of Skype or something like that for you? I, maybe I'm getting a little too personal there. No, I, I think no. That, that's a very good question. And it, I haven't thought too much about it, but I think the difference is um, whether we're talking about something that, that I think is, is, is interesting and worthwhile mm-hmm. um, ver- versus small talk. Small talk is just horrendously painful for right. me, right? right? I have no idea what to say, right? <laughs> but now you pick a topic. Let's talk about price gouging. Okay, right. that we, you know, we can go on and on about, yeah. right? But if you ask me, you know, so how was your day? Well, I yeah. don't know. It's yeah. just a day, right? Yeah. What am I supposed to say to that? <laughs> so, so I think, I think the, the introversion is this, is the source of my, of, of my biggest failures and it, and it manifests itself in various ways. For example, um, you know, you're, you, you're an entrepreneur, you're trying to raise money for a business, you've got to talk to investors. And right. of course you talk about the business and the product and that's fine, but you also have to develop personal relationships. Right. So you've got to be talking about, you know, your golf game and your kids and the whatever, right? And that's the hard part for, for an introvert. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, I, I, think, I think one of the things that helps, that I've found helps me get over that is to make the discussion about the other person. Correct. So so talk about, you know, tell me about yourself. Tell me your story. Tell me, you know, what are your interests? And and what happens is you end up not talking very much at all. You end up becoming a listener. Mm-hmm. And and so may and, and so I that's that's kind of the way I've found that maybe it's a it's it's an it's a paradoxical way around being an introvert is to just listen. <laughs> and people enjoy it. But I've I've had people say after the fact, 
oh, that guy, N.T. Davies, he's, I had a great time talking to him, mm-hmm. when in fact the whole time I didn't say a word. I, know. I was just listening. It's funny you say that. And and for, for the listeners, I did not pay Anthony to say that because I, I just I wrote an article uh, that was that went on Medium about the the absolute number one topic of conversation that you need to know, and that the the I'm going to give it away. Spoiler alert: it's the other person, and it's just yeah, like you yeah. say. If you can make the topic about them, because I'm completely in the same boat as you are when it comes to being an introvert. Uh, I don't like doing that. I don't like really getting into the small talk. It makes me nervous, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But you can learn the skill to become what they what they would call an ambivert, right? To be able to be comfortable right, right. if you can develop conversational skills and put them into practice. So... Uh, I didn't. I didn't pay you to say that. Tell everybody that. No, no, it's no, it's it's excellent. It's excellent advice. Uh, it's good. It's good. It's good. Um, so, did you? Would you say you've grown through that then, because of the, your experiences? Well, I I would say grown so much as I've managed to tolerate it. Right. Um, uh-huh. You know, it's it's it it will never be. You know, Small talk will never be one of my strengths, uh, but but I've found like a crutch that gets me around it. It, it. That's kind of the best I can hope for there. I just had at some point, I think this is part of of, of personal growth and, and dealing with failures as well is, you know, you, you've got to identify your weaknesses and work on them. But mm-hmm. but if you come to the point that you that you realize, look, this is a serious weakness for me, and either a I'm never o- going to overcome it, or b if I do overcome it, I'm going to have to give up so much time and energy on other things that you know all I'm going to have left is this. I- at that point, you just have to kind of cut bait and say, all right, look, I'm not good at this. I'm going to have to find a way around it as best I can. I'm going to use your own words against you and just say that success means being a little bit uncomfortable. So, right, for you to be successful, you need to spend time in small talk. <laughs> yeah, no, you're you're absolutely right. You're absolutely right. That does not make it any less painful. <laughs> right, absolutely. That's wonderful. Um, well, I don't, uh, our time is getting away. Hey, I have loved talking to you and it has been incredibly insightful to me. Uh, before we go, uh, tell our listeners a little bit about your podcast, what you talk about, where they can find it and where they can kind of find you online. I, I have a weekly podcast with my uh, co-author, James Harrigan. He and I write op-eds for uh, the Pittsburgh paper, the Philadelphia paper, U.S. News. Um, and uh, we have a weekly podcast. You can find us on wordsandnumbers.org. And we talk about uh, economics and policy issues of the day. Excellent. And you are, are you on Twitter, Facebook and all that stuff? I'm on Twitter, uh, Anthony Davies. Uh, I'm on Facebook. Uh, feel free to friend me, and you can find all kinds of interesting materials at anthonydavies.org. Excellent. Well, Anthony, thank you so much for being here. It's been a great pleasure talking to you. My pleasure. Thank you. All right. I want to share with you my top learning moments. What an incredibly insightful interview. I learned a ton about economics and how economics works. I hope you did as well. Plus, Plus, what economics has to do with success. And so here's what I learned, uh, the top two among many others. First of all, I really enjoyed what Dr. Davies said about how success is partly being uncomfortable. In other words, if we are completely comfortable in life, it's most likely the case that we are experiencing no personal growth. So to a certain extent, 
our success is connected to our growth. It's important for us to be outside of our comfort zones in order to grow. I like to write a lot and read a lot about personal growth. And so for me, that was an incredibly uh, insightful comment. And take a look at your own life and ask yourself the question, am I comfortable now? And if you are, maybe you're not achieving the success that you want to achieve. And maybe that means stepping outside of those areas of comfort and doing things that you don't like to do. A great learning moment for me personally. Number two, Dr. Davies talked about the relationship between success and failure. And we often look at that in, as he used, uh, dichotomous terms, that one is the good thing that we want and another is the bad thing that we want to escape from. And then when he said studying entrepreneurs, the difference and what distinguishes the successful entrepreneurs from those who do not succeed or who failure is not the success or the failure, but rather it's the persistence. He mentioned that uh, many times entrepreneurs go through two to three to four or five failures before they stumble upon a success. And it's not about um, it's not about the success as much as it is about learning from the failures and persisting and persevering through them. And so if you have experienced some setbacks, if you have experienced some challenges in your life, that's not the end. It's important to learn from those experiences, to learn lessons, to persevere, to press on, and to push on through. And that is an incredible insight. So I learned a ton from today's interview. I hope you did as well. I hope this podcast has been informative and helpful to you. Remember the show notes with all of the links are at mindforlife.org slash zero two five. You can leave comments or suggestions on how we can make this podcast better. Also subscribe on iTunes, head on over there, leave a rating and review. And once again, thanks for listening and we will talk to you next time. <music>